As I have studied this issue, it has become clear that the Alliance raises antitrust and competitive concerns that need to be examined, which we intend to do today. In fact, anytime we see a group of competitors, such as the conferences, agreeing with each other instead of competing with each other, that is a potential antitrust problem. I also want to note for the record that we have contacted the ABC Network, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, and the Fiesta Bowl, and none of these organizations were interested in testifying before us this afternoon. Second, let's keep in mind that amateur sports in America is a business and a very big business. So it is not surprising that postseason bowls are as much about ratings as rankings, as much about sponsorship as sportsmanship, and as much about the bottom line as the line of scrimmage. This may not be right, but it is the reality. And that leads me to the question I, I want to really want to ask you, which is, who are the people who make the decision? And I'm one of those people who's a little confused about the relationship between the Alliance on the one hand and the NCAA on the other hand, which you are representing. As the NCAA considers its future with, re with reference to postseason football, who is that? Uh, uh, are those the presidents? Are those the athletic directors? Uh, how many of the people who are making that decision represent the 40% excluded class that are unable to aspire to greatness today? Who, who makes that decision? Our, our organization is composed of uh, the 940 institutions and, and in Division 1, uh, 1A it's 110. Our new structure, uh, there is a board of directors in Division 1 composed of college presidents, entirely of college presidents. Uh, that is a body of 15 uh, members that, that will determine the uh, and ratify legislation. Well, let me rephrase the question. Is the majority of that group currently in the preferred class? Yes. So the membership of the group that makes the decision about the future of college football consists of a majority who benefit from the current system, and that could only be overridden by a vote of the general membership, and it would require super majorities to do that. That is true. Um, Mr. Dempsey, would that pass the f smell test? Uh, if you were trying to explain the fairness of that, would, would that uh, be an easy thing for you to do? Mr. Dempsey, I want to say to you, I remember a book, something about the flat catchers. They always send out the NCAA guy, but it is, in fact, the college presidents that run your institution, isn't it? That's right. And, they and you have, work for them. I work for them, and they have the vote as to what uh, will be the direction on, on uh, a number of our issues. Is this a violation of the antitrust laws? Good question. The Bowl Alliance is paying out serious money to some of the best lawyers in America to insulate them from that charge. But as you noted, and I note that no one from ABC TV with the TV rights to two-thirds of all the bowls and a financial interest in 70% of the conference TV packages has stepped forward to explain the role TV plays in all of this. And also no university president from the NCAA Board of Directors is here today to benefit from these panel discussions. It's time for the leadership of the NCAA to consider that greed should not be an attribute to be rewarded by these leaders of American higher education. If, if there were to be a playoff, I can tell you that I think at least 10 football coaches, 10 athletic directors, and 11 university presidents would sit it out. They simply wouldn't participate. So there's a practical side to this whole well, discussion. Say it again. Say it again. I'm sorry. I'm we was, if, if the majority of members in 1A decided, yes. in other words, let's say the WAC, the Mid-American, Conference USA, decided by a vote of 
55 to 45, that they wanted to force the Big Ten, the Pac-10, and the SEC into a playoff. We would simply say thanks, but no thanks. We'll continue to play in the Rose Bowl. And then you can go market whatever product you've created and see what interest there is. The fact of it is there'd be little to no interest in an agreement with those institutions because they don't carry the interest of the American public. The membership in Division 1A has never voted to conduct an NCAA football championship. Instead, 1A has a tradition of postseason football participation through a series of bowl games conducted during the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Unlike the NCAA's administration of other championships, its role in 1A postseason football is minimal, focused primarily on a certification process. The association's involvement in 1A football was significantly diminished in 1982 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the NCAA's regular season television contract a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. As a result, schools negotiate television contracts through their conferences. Currently under debate is access to the BCS bowls by the non-BCS conference institutions. There should be a fair means of competing for postseason play. This is, I believe, the essence of the coalition's position. No school, including the BCS institutions, should be disadvantaged by any new approach. In that regard, I do not favor redistribution of current revenues that accrue to the BCS universities through their football media contracts. The current revenue structure is a result of the free market system at work. Any changes to the current approach must add value for all participants. What critics are asking is to share in money they did not produce, to in effect have Nebraska fans or students or taxpayers subsidize their athletic programs. Why is it valid to only claim that those who happen to excel in football are being unfair in doing so? Why shouldn't we open up access to endowments, to tuition income, to nationally recognized faculty, to federal grants, to gifted students under a similar theory that it is unfair for any institution to be more successful than any other institution? I thought that fairness in our society meant that if you worked hard, if you made the right decisions, if you were able to retain the allegiance of customers or patrons, and if you were successful, you should be able to enjoy the benefits of that success. Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And uh, I can also be found on all the third-party podcast directories. You can also check out my blog at cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is February 8th, twenty. 22. And this is going to be a fun episode. I, I gave you a, a long intro there with quotes from two sets of hearings, one from 1997, one from 2003 that I'm going to talk about here. And when I do a long intro like that, I try to give my listeners a heads up in the show notes and the description of the episode that gets posted both on the third party directories and also on my website, just to encourage you to hang in there with it. I think that those quotes are interesting interesting even in isolation, but I'm going to put them in context and I'm going to go through each quote and explain why I selected it, why I think it's important and what it says about what's happening right now. So even though we're reaching back into the archives, into the 1990s and the early 2000s, what was discussed at these hearings 
is directly on point with what's happening right now in the uh, makeover through this new constitution and the work of the Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee and how all of that folds into these discussions that have really been muted in the big-time sports media that relate to conference realignment and the expansion of the CFP. But again, at the middle of all of this is the power of big-time football. And that power and the arrogance that goes along with it is on full display in these hearings. So let me tell you how I want to handle this episode because there's a lot of material here and I have spent a lot of time digesting this information. And I actually first listened to these hearings and broke them down several years ago when I was writing in my blog early on to really get a sense of how the market participants have framed their interests with respect to external regulators. And Congress is an external regulator. And in preparation for this episode, I've gone back and listened to all of these hearings again and really tried to synthesize the themes, the messaging, and what I think those hearings say about what we're going to be talking about going forward and the future of college sports. This isn't just about the future of college football. They are driving the train here. This is about the future of college sports. And in that regard, it's so important to understand context and history. And that's really why I wanted to do the last episode, episode 95, What's Past is Prologue, because so much of what we're going to hear from these hearings is really being expressed in a much more sophisticated way now through the Power Five's messaging and their lobbying in Congress. But it's the same message, same theme, same power brokers, same end game. So what I want to do is provide some important context for these hearings and then go through the quotes that I selected. And I selected those for a reason. And then I'm going to wrap up really at the thematic level as we look at what is likely to happen going forward with this transformation committee and all of the satellite issues surrounding big-time college football and big-time college sports. So let me just first give you the names of these two hearings, then I'll explain how they came to be and what they were about. So the first set of hearings were on May 22nd of 1997. They were held in the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust Monopolies and Business Rights. And the title of those hearings was College Football Bowl Alliance. It was a full day of hearings. There were three separate panels, and I'm going to talk briefly about who was on those panels and what interests they represented. And then the second hearing, second set of hearings, were on October 29th of 2003, and these were conducted in the Senate Judiciary Committee, the full Judiciary Committee, not a subcommittee. And the title of those hearings were Competition in College Bowl Games. And if you're asking yourself if that second hearing in October of 2003 sounds a lot like the one from 1997, you are absolutely correct because hardly anything changed between 1997 and 2003 with respect to the marketplace of big-time college football. So at the broadest level, at the 30,000-foot level, these hearings really were about the battle between the haves and have-nots in big-time college football. Who was going to have a seat at the table in the big-money products, and that revolved around the major bowls. We didn't have a football playoff, although that came up again and again in both of these sets of hearings. But the uh, question was... 
who was going to have access to these big postseason bowls and who was really making the decisions. A lot of important issues came up there. And it all came down to basically the dominance of what are now the Power Five football interests saying, this is our show and we get to decide. At the time of these hearings, there were really only a very small handful of meaningful bowls that were controlling the postseason football marketplace. You had the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, you had the Cotton Bowl, and then you had the Rose Bowl. But those were the Glory Bowls. There were a handful of smaller bowls. I think there were a total of 19 bowls at that time in the 1990s. It's now more than double that. But this have-have-not battle really revolved around access to those major bowls. And in this debate, in this discussion, it was an interesting insight into the uh, interests of the status quo versus the reformists in college sports. And even though this was contextualized by postseason football, that that aspect of the battle between the status quo and reform plays out again and again in big-time college sports. The big-time powerful football interests, what are now the Power Five, were arguing to preserve the status quo. They said, this is the best system that we can come up with. It's better than the old system. It requires us to completely control these bowl games. And making the argument for a playoff in the highest levels of college football was heresy. It was just, that was uh, profane language to the ears of the NCAA and the big-time powerful football interests. They argued that any playoff, any playoff at all, would be an existential threat to the college football market, and it would destroy college football as we knew it. When you go back and you look at how aggressively the big-time powerful football interests defended the status quo that existed under the iterations of the postseason football prior to the college football playoff, you just have to laugh. I mean, it's, it's comical, really, to see how adamant they were that any change to that system that moved towards a playoff that could produce a true national champion in big-time college football was simply not going to be part of the discussion. And then on the other side of that, you had interests arguing for a fundamental overhaul of how the postseason football marketplace was structured to allow access for the little guys. And in these hearings, the little guys were what are now the group of five conferences and an independent BYU but you had these lower-level conferences, and the conferences have changed because th this was also during really the, the beginning of the aggressive conference realignment that occurred in the 1990s and through the first decade of the 21st century. But basically, you have uh, football interests in the have-not category here in these hearings that pretty much align with what are now the group of five conferences, like the American Athletic Conference, uh, Conference USA, the Mid-American Conference, the MAC, the Mountain West Conference, and, and the Sun Belt. In a nutshell, the have-nots, who really were instrumental in getting these hearings on the schedule. They claimed that the haves in the way that they structured the bowl market were violating antitrust laws because of the exclusive agreements that the big time powerful football conferences and schools had with these major bowls and that there really wasn't a viable realistic pathway for any of the have-nots to work their way into a slot in any 
of those bulls. That's why these hearings were conducted in judiciary, because judiciary has frontline jurisdiction over antitrust issues. So I want to talk a little bit about the historical context and then how the interests aligned and a, a tiny bit of compare and contrast between the nature of these hearings versus the nature of the hearings that occurred in 2020, 2021, and will likely occur in 2022 relating to athletes' rights. So this is really about the big-time college sports football market reorganizing itself post-Board of Regents. And remember, Board of Regents is that uh, seminal case in college sports that gave big-time football its financial freedom, and the powerful football schools, mostly from the South, sued the NCAA because the NCAA at that time had an ironclad monopoly over the televised football market for the regular season. That really involved the regular season, but I think the logic of Board of Regents also would apply to the post-season. And the U.S. Supreme Court in 1984 said, yes, the NCAA is acting as a classic monopoly. They control the market. They are preventing other people from getting into the marketplace. And that is a slam dunk violation of antitrust laws. That argument that the powerful football schools made against the NCAA in the 1980s is not that different from what the have-nots are saying in the 90s and the early 2000s. So. This is really important because you had that that division between the Big Ten and the Pac-10 on the one hand, and then you had the ACC, the SEC, the Big 12, and and the Big East was a player back then, but I'm not really going to talk about them. But you, you have what are now essentially the Power Five conferences, but you had this rift, this regional rift that played out during Board of Regents. That really hadn't been reconciled yet, and that started to happen in discussions about how big-time football was going to reorganize the marketplace post-Board of Regents. And remember, these hearings are in 1997, so we're 13 years out of Board of Regents and we're still on the beginning wave of big-time college football, allowing market forces to influence what big-time college football looks like. And when you look at it historically, it took almost 30 years for those interests to reorganize the market into what it is now with the Power Five and the CFP. And I think it's ironic that those interests now that are controlling the marketplace are saying that they want to shut down the name, image, and likeness market and the transfer market after six months. When suppressed markets are freed, there is uh, a little bit of chaos. And I think that's, that happened clearly, that happened in Board of Regents. And I've talked quite a bit about that. And there's, there's been a lot written about that, that early post-Board of Regents time when there was just a glut of football programming, the market was a mess, and it looked like the Board of Regents decision may have been a bad thing after all. I don't think anybody's saying that right now, particularly people in the Power Five conferences. But the same thing's happening with name, image, and likeness and transfer. And you have a an emerging market, and it's going to take time to figure out what it really means and whether it has posed the threats to the status quo that the status quo true believers are suggesting that it does. And again, we're back to the same theme. This, the status quo that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are fighting for right now could be viewed historically as ridiculous as the status quo that these powerful football interests were fighting for in 1997 and 2003. But through the initial reorganization attempts and the reunification attempts between these two groups of conferences, you had really four iterations of postseason football. And these hearings relate only to 
postseason football. This has nothing to do with the regular season. And you know, I did that episode on Power 5 football by the heartstrings and the purse strings to try to get on the table the truth of the big-time college sports marketplace that almost, not almost all, a substantial majority of the revenue in the total pot of big-time college sports for football and men's basketball, that is uh, generated on campus for the most part. The lion's share of that revenue isn't the product of postseason football or postseason men's basketball. So in these hearings, we're just talking about postseason football. And that uh, has had really four different iterations post-Board of Regents. The first was the Bowl Coalition from 1992 to 1994. And then the next iteration was called the Bowl Alliance. And that was from 1995 to 1997. And then that transformed into the Bowl Championship Series, which was in place from 1998 to 2013. Then in actually 2012, the uh, CFP was formed and they played their first game in 2015. And so we have the CFP model, which has a true playoff and national championship in addition to the bowl games. So the, these coveted bowl games have remained in the marketplace, but now we have this playoff that's generating billions and billions of dollars. But in these first two iterations, the coalition and the alliance in the 90s, for most of the 90s, those ran through the College Football Association. And as I've discussed in prior episodes, that organization was put together, driven by Southern interests, and then the Pac-10 and the Big Ten sort of parted ways with the Southern conferences because they didn't really buy into to what the Southern conferences were trying to do by putting so much pressure on the NCAA to uh, relinquish some of its control over the televised football market. But those bowls that were part of the coalition and the alliance were the Southern Bowls. The Rose Bowl, the king of all bowl games, was completely outside of those first two iterations. And that was controlled by the Big Ten and the Pac-10. And they were happy with the Rose Bowl. And they weren't too interested in jumping in with the coalition or the alliance. And that, I think, reflects this cold war between those two sets of conferences that I discussed in the last episode. But a really important and I think transformative thing happened as the big-time football interests transformed from the Bowl Alliance in 1997 into the Bowl Championship Series that started in earnest in 1998. And that was that the Rose Bowl was in play. And the Big Ten and the Pac-10 brought that coveted ball into the rotation of the other big bowls. And the idea was that there was a better chance that you could put together a matchup of the number one and number two teams in the country. It was a complicated rotating formula. I'm not going to get into the details. But what's significant about that to me is that this was really the end of the Cold War between the Big Ten and the Pac-10 on the one hand, and then the, the Southern Conferences on the other. And I don't think it's coincidental that as the Big Ten and Pac-10 Pac-10 sort of came on board with the other conferences. You had the unification of those two powerful sets of conferences, and then you had this crazy conference realignment in the mid-1990s. But man, it really took off in the late 1990s in the first decade of the 2000s. And Keith Dunavant described that as a high-stakes game of musical chairs. And that facilitated the aggregation of football power, and it was a football-driven realignment, into the five conferences that we now know as the Power Five. And college sports had never seen 
anything like that. So this is really, these 1997 hearings are the beginning wave of that. And the other thing that happened in 1997 that I think was important, at least from a symbolic standpoint, was that the College Football Association that was the vehicle through which these Southern football interests won their freedom from big-time college football and Board of Regents. That organization was founded in 1977. It disbanded in 1997. It was losing steam. It was losing market share. And you had some of the most powerful players in the CFA kind of bailing, including the SEC. That happened before 1997. But in 1997, the CFA just disbanded. But it's symbolic, at least, because I think it was the death of this rift between the Big Ten, Pac-10 on the one hand, and then the, the Southern conferences on the other. So the other thing that's important about these hearings is that the interests really aren't partisan interests. The have-not interests who really were the movers and shakers behind these hearings were state-specific and even school-specific. And you had uh, BYU and Wyoming and Louisville making a bunch of noise because in 1996, all three of those schools felt like they got screwed by the the bowl alliance format and they didn't get to the bowls that, that they wanted to get to and BYU for example was ranked number five in the country but it didn't make it to a alliance bowl Wyoming and Louisville were in a similar position but they really didn't have the kind of season that BYU had but you had senators from Utah and Wyoming and Kentucky taking to the microphone to lead this charge on behalf of the have-nots against the haves. This didn't break down along party lines. It really broke down along status quo versus reformist lines. And I think Mitch McConnell's a really good example of that. Mitch McConnell testified at the hearing. He was a witness. And then he, after he finished testifying, he ran over to the dais and all of a sudden he's sitting as a committee member. It was just comical, really. But McConnell, he's a Republican from Kentucky. Kentucky's in the SEC, but Louisville is not. And McConnell was there testifying on behalf of the little guys because Louisville believed that it got snubbed in 1996. And why is McConnell taking up that charge? Why is he leading that charge? Because McConnell's a graduate of Louisville. So you had these very provincial and even personal interests that were attached to these hearings. But when you look at how provincial the interests really were and how they were expressed through these very powerful senators, you really see, I think, how powerful football is, not just at the cultural level and the financial level, but at the political level. And that's going to have resonance when I do a compare and contrast with what's happening right now in Congress. You just can't underestimate the power of the football interests. And that dovetails into another important dynamic in these hearings, both sets of hearings. And that is that the senators on the judiciary committees, they were pretty clear. And this was, I think, a universal sentiment. This was not a dispute between the haves and the have-nots or between Democrats and Republicans, there was pretty broad agreement that these hearings were designed to put pressure on the big-time football interests to work something out with the have-nots. They wanted the haves and the have-nots to sit down at the table and come up with something that ameliorated the concerns that the have-nots had. And they said, yes, we could legislate. Yes, there are obvious antitrust implications here. There could be litigation. We don't want any of that. We want you guys to 
work it out on your own. And obviously that didn't happen between 1997 and 2003 because you had the same issues, the same antitrust issues, rearing their ugly head just six years later. And then you had discussions about this that have been simmering beneath the surface of big time college football, really into the CFP. It's, it's my belief that one of the reasons that the big time powerful football interests, what are now the power five, when they were conceptualizing the college football playoff and they formed the CFP in 2012, they brought in the group of five. They brought in the have-nots, this group of interests that have been uh, fighting with them for decades and nipping at their heels to try to get a seat at the big boy table. The Power Five brought them in to the CFP, and I think that was driven in large part out of fear of the potential antitrust implications if the group of five were excluded. And you had this really formal, structured product, the football playoff, that essentially excluded the group of five. That would be untenable. And it would probably have resulted in an antitrust lawsuit by the group of five. So the Power Five bring in the group of five. But when you look at how the CFP is structured in terms of who gets the money, about 80% of it goes to the Power Five. And then the group of five gets some. And then there's some pocket change thrown out to some other interests. So I think in the formation of the CFP, these big-time powerful football interests kept most of everything they wanted and they also got a bit of an insurance policy against any antitrust litigation. But when we transition back into what's happening now, I think if you're looking carefully at how some of the critics of the CFP are talking now, and you have these differences of opinion on the CFP expansion, you have the potential for further conference realignment, some of these very same antitrust issues are percolating just beneath the surface. Nobody's talking about it on those terms because they don't want to go back there. But when you look at the philosophies underlying the Power Five view of their role in college sports and in the football marketplace, in these 1997 and 2003 hearings, they're saying, we don't have to share the wealth with anybody. We earned it. We keep it. And if you guys want to go out and do your own thing and try to make more money out in the market, good luck to you. And I think it's also significant that this discussion occurs in a forum that is an external regulatory threat to the status quo for the big-time powerful football interest. They are being dragged kicking and screaming to this discussion just to sit at the table with the have-nots and talk about it. And that reflects the historic arrogance of the powerful football interest. But I think what it speaks to in the context of these hearings is that the NCAA and the powerful football interest, however they're configured, they are not going to change on their own. These external regulatory threats, here it was a, a really a gentle threat from the Senate, but now we have state legislatures and we have antitrust litigation dragging the NCAA to change. They have not come here willingly. And this constitutional makeover is a perfect example of that. And I tease that dynamic out in some detail in my episodes on that committee. And I think when you look at what the NCAA and Power Five were trying to do in Congress in 2020 and 2021 to completely eliminate the athletes' rights movement through these extraordinary federal protections and immunities, what they were essentially saying is we're not going to change on our own. We're simply going to control the marketplace. And they went on offense and all these other scenarios in these hearings in 1997, 2003, they were dragged into Congress against their will. 
And the same was true with the state name, image, and likeness laws. And of course, the antitrust litigation, the White, uh, Bannon, and Austin line of cases. And then there were some others outside of the, that California trilogy. But you had all of these external regulatory threats where the NCAA was forced to either change its business conduct or to at least consider changing it voluntarily, and they have refused to do it. Instead, they run to Congress, go on offense, and ask for absolute protection for their business model and for their regulatory authority. And that just reflects the institutional arrogance of the NCAA and the Power Five. Rather than making meaningful voluntary change, they are simply repackaging their arrogance and stubbornness, and they're going to go back to Congress to try to preserve their regulatory authority, their autonomy, and their ability to do whatever the hell they want to do in the marketplace. And there's a decent chance that they may be successful. And then there's another important thing that happened in this time frame that contextualizes this hearing, the, hearing, the 90, 97 hearings. And that is that in 1996, the NCAA completely did a makeover of the governance system in the NCAA governance structure. And they eliminated one school, one vote legislation, and they went with a federated representative system of governance that was dominated by football interests. That was a hostile takeover at the governance level. And so I think some of the arrogance that you see coming from the institutional stakeholders is that they aren't that worried. If they don't think Congress is going to come in and really do anything, if this is just kind of kabuki theater to try to put some pressure on them, there is no pathway within the membership after this restructure that would threaten any of uh, the Power Five football interests. They have dominance at the regulatory level. And that is really important. And that has played through into this new Constitution Committee. And then one final thing about context and, and the nature of these hearings versus what's happening right now. And that is that in the 1990s and the early 2000s, the NCAA and the Powell Five didn't really have a lobbying presence in Washington, D.C. They had set up a government relations office. I think that was in the 1990s, and they had an office on DuPont Circle, but I think it was a very small staff. And they did not really get into the big time lobbying game until 2014. The NCAA did that in connection with its uh, campaign in the Senate then for the autonomy legislation, the Power Five autonomy legislation. The uh, NCAA was running inter interference for the Power Five football interests. And then beginning in 2019, you had the Power Five conferences hiring their own lobbyists. Um, most of that occurred in 2020. 20, right at or about the time of the first hearing in the Senate. And this is when the NCAA was going on offense to get all these federal protections and immunities through the Senate Commerce Committee and NCAA-friendly Republicans. So in 1997 and then in the, in the early 2000s, there wasn't a polished presentation of the issues. There was some subterfuge, and I'll talk about that when I get to these quotes, but you didn't have an organized, coordinated strategy among the people in system who wanted to preserve the status quo, the haves in the big-time college sports world and marketplace. In 2022, you have enormous 
uh, firepower at the lobbying level, at the political level, and it is coordinated in a way that I think is largely invisible to the public because it's not just this political coordination between the Power Five and the NCAA. It's coordination out in the messaging in the, in the public relations campaign through the NCAA propaganda and then also through the themes that have developed post-Austin and post-Constitution Committee to try to lay the foundation for the fact that this nil market and this transfer market is killing college sports and we need Congress to come in and save us from calamity. We're back to the same arguments and you're hearing them and they're much more subtle, they're coordinated, and they are massaged by the best spin doctors in the world. So uh, let's jump in with the montage that I had. I'm going to walk you through it, give you a little bit about each quote and why I think these quotes are important. So the very first one was from Mike DeWine, who was a Republican from Ohio. I believe he may have been the chair of that, that subcommittee. He was both at the 1997 hearings and then also the 2003 hearings. And he said in 2003, here we go again, nothing's changed. And we talked about this in 1997. But DeWine, I believe, was sympathetic to the have-nots. I think he did a decent job of kind of playing it down the middle in terms of how he conducted the hearing. But some of his comments suggest that he was really sympathetic to the to the have-not. So he says, as I have studied this issue, it's become clear that the alliance raises antitrust and competitive concerns that need to be examined, which we intend to do today. In fact, anytime we see a group of competitors, such as the conferences, agreeing with each other instead of competing with each other, that is a potential antitrust problem. Then he goes on to say this, and this is important. I also want to note for the record that we have contacted the ABC network, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, and the Fiesta Bowl, and none of these organizations were interested in testifying before us this afternoon. And what he was saying is that it just it was a bad look for the among the most powerful participants in postseason football refused to come. And he said later in the hearing that he could have subpoenaed them, but he chose not to. And one of the concerns was that the incestuous relationship between big-time football and the postseason bowls and the networks, specifically ABC, because ABC really was a dominant force in postseason football and contracts they had for bowl games, including the Sugar Bowl, Orange Bowl, and Fiesta Bowl. So they had contracts for those, and I think they wanted to bring in the, the Rose Bowl. But they were obviously important to how the football interests were presenting those interests at this hearing and behind the scenes, but they didn't show up to testify. And of course, at the time, ABC owned ESPN. They bought ESPN a few years earlier, and I don't remember when Disney took over ABC, but you have ESPN involved in all these bowl games now, and I've talked about that, and the fact that they operate in many ways as a monopoly over the postseason bowl market and, of course, with the CFP. But you don't hear boo about that today. And that's in part, I think, because the have-nots have been placated in the way that the CFP was formulated. But I think those relationships today aren't that much different from the relationships that existed in 1997 and 2003 and the influence of the broadcast media outlets like ABC and now ESPN. So the next clip is from Senator Herb Cole, who is a Democrat from Wisconsin. It's a Big Ten state. But one of the things that Senator Cole said that was, I think, important is that he just put it on the table that this is big business. And he says, let's keep in mind that amateur sports in America is a business and a very big business. 
So it is not surprising that postseason bowls are as much about ratings as rankings, as much about sponsorship as sportsmanship, and as much about the bottom line as the line of scrimmage. This may not be right, but it is the reality. I, I love that. He is arguing in favor of the halves, but he has to acknowledge the absurdity of the big-time powerful football interests coming in and trying to paint a picture that they really are providing access to the have-nots and that they really are interested in the interests of the have-nots. They don't give a damn about the have-nots. They just want to avoid an antitrust lawsuit or any legislation that could force them to do something that they don't want to do. So this next clip is important, and this was a Q&A between Mitch McConnell and Cedric Dempsey, president of the NCAA. And McConnell is wearing his, his senator hat here, not his witness hat. So I, I guess I should throw in here some, uh, something about the structure of these hearings. So there were three panels. The first panel was comprised exclusively of sitting United States senators with a beef on behalf of the have not. So you had Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, the Louisville interest. You had uh, Robert Bennett, Republican from Utah, the BYU interest. You had uh, both senators from Wyoming, Craig Thomas and Mike Enzi. So those four senators, all Republicans, all in the have not category, all with a beef from the prior season that their teams got screwed in the way that this postseason bowl uh, market is structured. That panel mostly just kind of read their testimony. There were a few token questions, but that really framed the hearing. And it was clear that this was a hearing in three panels that were really designed to give the have nots their day in Congress. Then the second panel was a little more mixed, and you had a couple of coaches. You had the Louisville coach was there, and he was a vocal advocate for the have-nots. And then you had some athletes, and they fell on both sides of the fence, one saying, yeah, status quo is great, and the Bowl Alliance is the way to go. It's the best thing in town, and it's way better than it was before. That was one of the prevailing themes. It may not be perfect, but boy, it's way better than it was before, and we can give college football and college football fans everything everything they want with the existing status quo. And then the two most important witnesses at the table then were SEC Commissioner Roy Kramer. He's right from the belly of the beast. And he, he speaks like an evangelical preacher with a deep Southern draw. He's really entertaining. And then sitting right next to Kramer was Cedric Dempsey, the president of the NCAA. In my judgment, for my purposes, those were the two most important witnesses, and I really kind of landed with with Dempsey. And uh, then we had this third panel. I think this was the antitrust legal panel, and you had people talking about the antitrust implications, and it got a little deep in the weeds. But Jim Delaney, the commissioner of the Big Ten, was on that panel, and among all of the panelists there, his testimony, in my judgment, was most consequential. So back to McConnell's Q&A. So McConnell's says, that leads me to the question I want to really ask you, which is, who are the people who make the decision? And I'm one of those people who is a little confused about the relationship between the alliance on the one hand and the NCAA on the other hand, which you are representing as the NCAA considers its future with reference to postseason football. And McConnell asks, who is that? The presidents? The athletics directors? How many of the people making those decisions represent the 40% excluded class that are unable to aspire to greatness today. Who makes that 
decision. And by the excluded class, McConnell's talking about the have-nots, the BYUs, the Wyomings, the Louisvilles. And this is a really important question. And here you have one of the smartest senators in the history of the Senate at a strategy level. And whatever you think about Mitch McConnell politically, you, I think, would have to concede that he is a brilliant strategist. So he's looking at the interest sitting at the witness table, and he's asking an obvious question that has perplexed 99.9% of uh, people paying attention to college sports since the Board of Regents decision. And that is, who the hell is in charge? And who is really calling the shots? I don't understand how this bowl alliance, this big-time powerful football juggernaut, is connected to the NCAA. And the reason that is perplexing to one of the most brilliant strategists in the history of the United States Senate is that the NCAA has gone to extraordinary lengths to hide from public view the fact that the NCAA is nothing more than a puppet for Power 5 football interests because of Board of Regents. They got their consolation prize with March Madness money, but you don't hear a breath of Board of Regents or a breath of the March Madness money with any of the three panels in this hearing. And if there was ever a question that would have prompted the NCAA to speak to the impact of Board of Regents, it's this question by McConnell. But Dempsey does the NCAA two-step. And Dempsey says, our organization is composed of the 940 institutions and then Division 1AA 210. In our new structure, there's a board of directors and divisions, and they're composed of college presidents, entirely of college presidents. That's a body of 15 members that will decide ratified legislation. And I didn't include the whole clip there from Dempsey, but he didn't know how to answer that question. So then McConnell pushes him. And that was, in his judgment, not an adequate answer. And it came across as kind of just babble. And he was clearly trying to use the big tent. Look, we have this 940 schools and everybody's under this big tent and but the board of directors it's about the presidents college presidents entirely college presidents so this is part of the circular firing squad approach and he's saying this is all about the college presidents don't blame me i'm just the messenger but he does mention the 15 member board of directors and so mcconnell follows up with that and he says well let me rephrase the question it's the majority of that group currently in the preferred class and what he means is that that body of 15 members is comprised largely of the haves not the have-nots when he says preferred class he means the haves what are now the power five and dempsey says simply yes and then mcconnell says this. So the membership of the group that makes the decision about the future of college football consists of a majority who benefit from the current system. And that could only be overwritten by a vote of the general membership. And it would require a super majority to do that. And Dempsey says, that is true. And then McConnell says, Mr. Dempsey, does that pass the smell test? If you were trying to explain the fairness of that, would that be an easy thing for you to do? And then Dempsey goes into an uncomfortable laugh. And But I think McConnell was serious about that. And the fact of the matter is that there's nothing about the big-time college sports financial market or regulatory market that passes the smell test. But again, no mention of Board of Regents. This is the kind of questioning that would have required that Cedric Dempsey acknowledge this dynamic where the 
big-time powerful football interests own the NCAA as a product of Board of Regents. And there was all this discussion at the hearing about whether the NCAA was going to come in and do a national playoff and start its own playoff. And Dempsey was not going to talk about the truth of the relationship between the powerful football interests and the NCAA. And he just looked ridiculous trying to make it appear as if the NCAA was legitimately considering a playoff for big-time Division I college football. And that's just misleading. It's very misleading. So I didn't include this in the montage, but Dempsey says, the only sport in which we do not have a national championship is Division 1A. That's now the FBS. It has not been the will of the membership to have a Division 1A championship even though it has been studied since 1970. And he says, in 1994, we had the most recent and most exhaustive study regarding whether to have a playoff in Division I-A football. University presidents said they weren't interested in a Division I playoff. And Dempsey says multiple times in this hearing, yeah, the presidents are looking at it. We have a president's commission and they're going to talk about it and they're going to get back to us. So we'll provide you more information. But the fact of the matter is, the truth of the matter is that the NCAA has absolutely no authority to conduct a national championship because of Board of Regents. And in the later clips in the montage, I have one from former NCAA President Miles Brand from 2003, where he says that outright. But the fact that Cedric Dempsey went to extraordinary lengths to avoid that fundamental truth about the big-time college football marketplace and its impact on the rest of the stakeholders is simply misleading. So the next clip in the montage is from Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions, and he is all on board with the haves. We're an SEC territory. We're in Alabama, Auburn territory. And I think Sessions was trying to bail Dempsey out because Dempsey was in the rope-a-dope. So uh, Sessions says, Mr. Dempsey, I remember something about the flack catchers. They always send the NCAA guy, but it is in fact the college presidents that run the NCAA. And Dempsey says, that's right. And Sessions says, you work for them. And Dempsey says, I work for them, and they have the votes as to what will be the direction on a number of our issues. So that's just this circular firing squad ping back to the university presidents. So then the next clip is from a gentleman named David Baker, and I put this in to really respond to what Dempsey and Sessions were saying about the importance of presidents and the fact that uh, Cedric Dempsey's just doing the will of the membership, just doing the will of the president. So Baker is an athletics administrator. I think he is at Wyoming, which is in the uh, Western Athletic Conference. That conference doesn't exist anymore, but that was one of the have-not conferences. So Baker says, is this, and by this he means the Bowl Alliance structure, a violation of the antitrust laws? Good question. The Bowl Alliance is paying out serious money to some of the best lawyers in America to insulate them from antitrust liability. And I note that no one from ABC TV came forward to explain the role TV plays in all this, and no university president from the NCAA Board of Directors is here today to benefit from these panel discussions. It's time for the leadership and the NCAA to consider that greed should not be an attribute to be rewarded for these leaders of America higher education. That just kind of nails it. And what Baker is saying here is that you're talking about the university presidents, but there's not a single university president sitting for any of the three panels. And you had, I don't know, maybe 15 witnesses, not a single 
university president or chancellor. So why weren't the presidents there? I think for the same reason that ABC wasn't there or representatives from the orange sugar or Fiesta Bowls or Rose Bowls weren't there because they will look like buffoons trying to defend this status quo. And then the, the final clip from the 1997 hearings, all the clips I've talked about so far have been from the 1997 hearings. And this is from Jim Delaney. Jim Delaney was the commissioner of the Big Ten, and he is a very smart guy. And he played a role then that I think Greg Sankey is playing now. And D Delaney, he speaks very forthrightly. He can be a little combative, and he, he ruffled a few feathers here. But in response to some questions about the playoff, whether it just wouldn't be better to have a playoff, and that was a theme that kept coming up time and time again. But a lot of the witnesses were saying that that playoff should be run by the NCAA. And again, there was this complete disconnect between the reality, the Board of Regents reality, where the NCAA can't play a role, and the suggestion that the NCAA could actually field a big-time college football playoff. But Delaney says, and this was in response to questions from Mike DeWine, the uh, Republican from Ohio who was the subcommittee chair. So DeWine asks Delaney a question, and Delaney says, if there were to be a playoff, I can tell you that I think at least 10 football coaches, 10 athletics directors, and 11 university presidents would sit it out. They simply wouldn't participate. So there's a practical side to this whole thing, and Delaney was about to go on, and DeWine hears that, and it was like a smelling salt. And he said, whoa, 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 what did you say? Can you say that again? And I'm paraphrasing a bit here for clarity, but Delaney says, if a majority of members, let's say the WAC, the Western Athletic Conference, and the Mid-American Conference, and Conference USA, all have nots, decided by a vote of 55 to 45 that they wanted to force the Big Ten the Pac-10, and the SEC into a playoff, we would simply say thanks, but no thanks. We will continue to play in the Rose Bowl, and then you can go market whatever product you've created and see what interest there is. The fact is that there'd be little or no interest because those institutions don't carry the interest of the American public. And guess what? Jim Delaney's absolutely right. The Power Five conferences are the college football market. And in many ways, they are the college sports market. And what he's saying without coming out and saying it is that we own the NCAA. And they can talk about the little guys, but you can't force us to do it. He doesn't talk about the change in the legislative structure. But as of the, the day that he's saying this, uh, in May of, of 1997, there is no legislative pathway other than a supermajority vote that would force the Power Five to do anything. But I think what's interesting about this is beyond that, I think Delaney was saying is that even if that vote occurred, you, we wouldn't do it. And I think that really is an exclamation point on the power that the big-time powerful football conferences and interests have over the entire marketplace and over the entire regulatory structure. And that reality was uh, part of the business model in 1997, and it is part of the business model in 2022. And this Constitution Committee essentially just makes that more explicit. But these dynamics have been in place really since the 1990s. And were the direct product of board 
of regions. And I guess I should also point out in that regard that 1997, March Madness was really just beginning to gain its energy. I think the NCAA did a big contract with, with CBS in 1998, and then Turner came in in, in 2010. And I've talked about that contract. But you don't really have any discussion about the NCAA's skin in this game. And that was really the, the heart of the McConnell line of questioning to Cedric Dempsey. What are you doing here? And Delaney's uh, testimony really highlights that. And it's like, well, if we have our own thing and we're going to do our own thing, no matter what, what the hell does the NCAA have to do with any of this? And the answer is at the practical level, at the reality level, is nothing because of Board of Regents. And the NCAA is doing here exactly what it did in 2003 at the hearings and then in, with autonomy legislation and then with this Constitution Committee. They are using essentially men's basketball and its value to the NCAA and the NCAA National Office as its sole source of re revenue as a bargaining chip to push the NCAA around but stay under the NCAA umbrella. And this is kind of a sneak peek of that way of thinking. And that way of thinking has become uh, bolder and bolder as the value of the postseason football product has gone up and the overall football product has gone up. And I think the March Madness money has pretty much maxed out. But you don't hear a word about the March Madness money and its importance to the NCAA and the fact that because of Board of Regents, that is the NCAA's consolation prize. And it will do anything in its power to keep the big-time football interest happy so that it can keep its gravy train, its March Madness gravy train. Because if the Power Five and big-time football left the NCAA, as they have threatened to do time and time again, it's very likely that the basketball product goes with them, and then the NCAA is nothing more than a glorified high school athletics association. So now we're transitioning to 2003 and these hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee. And at that time, Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah, was the chair of the Judiciary Committee. You had some of the same senators. You had the very same issues. And as a representative of Utah, Orrin Hatch is still trying to protect the interests of BYU and Utah. And at the time, Utah had not been brought into the Power Five. That came later through, through conference realignment. But Mike DeWine, the Republican senator from Ohio, who was the chair of that subcommittee in 1997, he's, he was on the Judiciary Committee. And he just came out and said, look, we've made no progress here in six years. And this was with the, the BCS now in place. So we went from the Ball Alliance to the BCS. And these 1997 hearings were really the transition into that. And the BCS was in place, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, from 1998 to 2013. And it was very successful in system stakeholder beneficiaries. And it, in large degree, excluded the have-nots from participating in the meaningful postseason football payouts. But Brandt speaks to the relationship between the NCAA and the big-time football interests, and it's it's really interesting. So Brand says, the membership in Division I has never voted to conduct an NCAA football championship. Instead, 1A, what is now the FBS, and the Power Five, really, has a tradition of postseason football participation through a series of bowl games conducted during the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Unlike the NCAA's administration of other championships, its role in big-time postseason football is minimal. 
focused primarily on a certification process. The association's involvement in big-time football was significantly diminished in 1982 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the NCAA's regular season television contract a violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. As a result, schools negotiate television contracts through their conferences. So there's Miles Brand saying out loud the impact of Board of Regents, but he's very coy and subtle in how he characterizes it. And that's as far as he goes. So that's what, 35 words devoted to the most transformative event in college sports. Mark Emmert did the same sidestep in 2020 during the fall football decisions on why the Power Five weren't shut down, why the NCAA couldn't come in and shut them down. And he made some very oblique comment during an interview that, oh, well, the NCAA doesn't conduct a championship in FBS football. And then boom, he's on to the next talking point. Those are massive issues in the college sports marketplace and the limitations on the NCAA's ability to do anything with big-time football. And I just want to point out that Board of Regents was as much on the books in 1997 as it was in 2003. So Brand's acknowledgement of the impact of Board of Regents in 2003 makes Cedric Dempsey's refusal to talk about that honestly even more problematic. So then Brand goes on to say, currently under debate is access to the BCS bowls by the non-BCS conference institutions. And I'll just note that's the same issue that was on the table in 1997. And Brand says, there should be a fair means of competing for postseason play. This is the essence of the critics' position. No school, including the BCS institutions, should be disadvantaged by any new approach. In that regard, I do not favor redistribution distribution of current revenues that accrue to the BCS universities through their football media contracts. And then Brand just gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, the current revenue structure is a result of the free market system at work. Any changes to the current approach must add value for all participants. And I just want to point out something here, and that is that whether it's Cedric Dempsey or Miles Brand, or Mark Emmert, later on in 2014 in uh, testimony before the Senate Commerce Committee, you have to ask yourself what the hell they're doing behind the microphone. And when Miles Brand comes out and says outright that they really don't have a role at the financial level in big-time college football because of Board of Regents, why the hell is he sitting behind a microphone making arguments that go to how that component of the overall business model should be operated. He has no skin in the game, and neither did Cedric Dempsey. But the fact that they were both sitting at the witness table testifying in front of the United States Senate in a way that I think was disingenuous, and that's putting it politely. You, you have to ask yourself, as Mitch McConnell did, I think essentially, you know, what the hell is going on here? How are you connected? What's the connection here? And the answer is the connection runs through the March Madness money that that they're never going to talk about. But Cedric Dempsey has no skin in the game with big-time college football. Neither does Miles Brand nor Mark Emmert because NCAA has no skin in the game as an organization. And they are doing nothing more than carrying the bags for the big-time powerful football interests. They They are the puppet. And the Power Five football interests are the puppeteers. And by having the NCAA president sitting there next to the big-time powerful football power brokers, it creates the illusion of consent 
to what the Power Five football interests want. And you're back to this manufactured consent and spontaneous consent to fundamentally false and misleading narratives that are directly at odds with the realities underpinning the big-time college sports marketplace. And before I talk more about Brand's quotes there, I want to talk a little bit about this next clip and the last clip. And this was at the same hearing. And this is from Harvey Perlman, who at the time was the chancellor of the University of Nebraska. And he is a law professor, that he has a, a legal background. Perlman is a really interesting guy. He has been w one of the most influential behind-the-scenes people in, in the modern college sports era. I don't think that's an overstatement, and he is everywhere. So he's testifying in uh, 2003, making, I think, a pretty persuasive case against the arguments that the have-nots are making. And Perlman's perspective is all about football. It is uh, big-time football, as you might expect from the chancellor of the University of Nebraska. But in 2013-14, uh, Perlman is right there again. When the Power Five were putting together their rationale for the autonomy legislation that basically created an association within an association for the Power Five under the NCAA umbrella, Perlman and the president of the University of Florida co-authored basically a uh, petition and a request to the Division I Board of Directors making the Power Five's case for the autonomy classification. And I'm going to go through that document in detail when I do a, an upcoming episode on the uh, autonomy legislation as the template for what's happening right now through this Division I uh, Transformation Committee. And then Perlman was very influential. I would say he was a dominant participant in the discussions at the Uniform Law Commission. He was on the committee that was looking at name, image, and likeness. And uh, he initially said he didn't think the Uniform Law Commission should be involved in name, image, and likeness and expressed, in my judgment, some hostility. I, I sat in on some of those discussions, and the ULC allows you to do that, and it was interesting. But, you know, Perlman's, a, he, he's smart. He's very, very smart. And his knowledge, his knowledge base, his database is so vast. It's really impressive. And, and I learned a lot, actually, just listening to him. But he, he has been a prominent voice in some very important milestones, post-Board of Regents, and really, I guess, in the 1990s forward. But what Perlman did was very lawyer-like, and he identified the main concerns that the have-nots had, and he couched them in terms of myths, and he talked about three components. The, their concerns about the money, the financial considerations, and their concerns about access, having a seat at the table. And then the third, their fairness arguments. He was very good on all three of those, and I agree with most of what he said, as I'm going to explain here in a second. But on the financials, he made a very good case, and an important case, that the hyper-focus on the postseason football revenue, the ball games, any any playoff, whatever revenue comes in after the end of the regular season, is really not as consequential as people think because it's a small slice of the overall football revenue pie. And that is true. Most of the money comes in at the institutional level through ticket sales and their own media rights and through donations and through licensing and marketing and all, all that stuff. And then on the access issues, I, I'm not sure I bought a lot of what he said. He basically said, if you're good enough, you can play. And and you can, you'll get a spot in one of these ball games. But I really want to land on the fairness issue because this is where I think 
you see some profound tension between the way that the powerful football interests really think about their role when it comes to their football money. But when it comes to the rest of the business model, they are satisfied to have a much different model in place. So here's what Perlman says on the fairness issue. What critics are asking is to share in money they did not produce to, in effect, have Nebraska fans or students or taxpayers subsidize their athletics programs. And what uh, Perlman's talking about there is this request by the have-nots to just be given something and some money that they really haven't earned. Then Perlman says, why is it valid to claim that only those who happen to excel in football are being unfair in doing so? Why shouldn't we open up access to endowments, to tuition, income, to nationally recognized faculty, to federal grants, to gifted students under a similar theory? Basically, he's saying, look, in life and in America, there are differences between people and between institutions, and life is unfair. That's kind of the, the theme here. Life is unfair. And in this big-time college football marketplace, life is unfair because you have some products that are far better than other products. And we can't just neutralize that reality. And then he couches that in terms of the obvious disparities in resources between universities. Perlman just brings it home. He says, is it unfair for any institution to be more successful than any other institution? I thought that fairness in our society meant that if you worked hard, if you made the right decisions, if you were able to retain the allegiance of customers or patrons, and if you were successful, you should be able to enjoy the benefits of that success. So I want to talk about Perlman's comments in conjunction with Brand's comments at the values level and then talk a little bit about how they play out in other parts of the business model outside of big time college football. So you have Brand and Perlman explicitly invoking American values and this Darwinian capitalism, the survival of the fittest, and Americans want to see the best play the best. We have the best products, and we eat what we kill. And if you guys think you can run with us, then do it. Don't bitch about it. Just do it. And I agree with that. I think that's a, a, a fair argument. And the disparities in resources and equalizing that between and among universities seems silly on its face. Although I will say that in that very same hearing, you had Joe Biden, a Democrat from Delaware, and Orrin Hatch, a Republican from Utah, coming together to say that the anti-competitive features of the BCS were un-American. So had these American values being put on the table, then you had two senators, an unlikely partnership there, Biden and Hatch, agreeing that, no, no, what you're doing here is really anti-competitive and, and you're looking at it uh, very selectively. But what's interesting about those discussions is that neither Brand nor Perlman say a single word about the March Madness money. Brand invokes it in terms of comparing the March Madness tur tournament structurally to what a playoff might look like. And he comes out and says he is anti-playoff. No way we're going to have a playoff. It's the death of college sports. Perlman says the same thing, and this is in 2003. But there's no discussion about the importance of the March Madness money. And that's a convenient omission because you can't talk about inequities in big-time college football and say that's 
okay because we're not equal. Life is unfair, and some football teams are better than others, and some make more money than others. You can't make that argument and also talk about the March Madness money because that money is used in a grand welfare system, system-wide. And all these uh, American principles that Perlman and Brand are invoking on behalf of college football don't apply to the basketball revenue. In fact, that March Madness money is the ultimate welfare system and sharing money with people who didn't earn it, just as Perlman said uh, big-time football shouldn't have to do. Why should we do that? Makes no sense. Then why do we do it with the basketball money? What Brand and Perlman are essentially saying is that it is un-American to share that wealth. It is un-American to hold the producers hostage to the takers who aren't adding anything of value to the product. So why, why can't the same be true for the March Madness money? And that ties in to Miles Brandt's conceptualization of the collegiate model. And that's what I want to close this episode out with and bring it right back home to this fundamental premise about the business model at the financial level. And Miles Brand in 2003, as he's sitting behind that microphone in the Senate Judiciary Committee, he is brainstorming about the formulation of the collegiate model as a way to resolve this tension between the commercialization and professionalization of big-time college sports and the uh, mission of higher education. And so in his State of the Association speech in 2006, he presents this theory that's been germinating since 2003 that there is an absolute duty on behalf of the NCAA and its membership to maximize revenue in the revenue-producing products so that they can take that money and send it downstream to participation opportunities in non-revenue sports that can't pay for themselves. That is the explicit command of the collegiate model as a financial framework for the business of big-time college sports. How can you at the institutional level, say, this is America. We built it. We, we are going to benefit from it. We are producing, and you're not, and we're winning, and you're losing. That happens. That's life, and that's life in the fast lane in the United States of America. And I think that one of the reasons that Dempsey and Brand and Perlman were very careful not to talk about the March Madness money and its importance to the NCAA is that when you sit the rationale for the use and expenditure of that money side by side with the football money, you can't reconcile those two concepts. And the way that the powerful football interests saw themselves in 1997 and 2003 is identical to the way that they see themselves in 2022. Their packaging of their justifications is far more sophisticated. And you're sure as hell not going to hear Greg Sankey or any Power Five conference commissioner or any Power Five athletics director or Mark Emmert or any other NCAA minion sitting in front of a microphone in 2022 making the same arguments that Miles Brand and Harvey Perlman made in 2003. Not because Brandon Perlman were wrong. They were absolutely right in the way that they viewed football's interests in the marketplace. And this is America, and you should be able to enjoy the fruits of your labor. But 
You think you're going to hear that from Greg Sankey? I don't think so, because he would be run out of town on a rail. I mean, that would be a front page news story if he just spoke those simple truths. But that doesn't mean those truths no longer exist. It means that the big time powerful football interests that now officially own the NCAA simply aren't going to speak on those terms in public. So they shape narratives through their massive public relations campaigns and literally an army of lobbyists working around the clock right now. They didn't stop their lobbying campaign after the Austin decision. They ramped it up. And in the first quarter of 2022, they're paying their lobbyists at least as much as they were paying them in the last quarter of 2022. One, and the purpose of that lobbying effort is to ensconce into federal law protections and immunities for the powerful football interests. And again, this is a football show that will allow them to define whatever status quo they choose and to protect the values that were expressed in those hearings in 1997 and 2003, that they are king of the hill, that they should be answerable to no one, and that they don't want any external regulatory force either pressuring them or forcing them to change. Uh, that'll be a good segue into the next episodes where I'm going to talk about the autonomy movement in 2013, 2014, and then how all of that comes together to really, I think, give us a pretty good template for what's likely to happen in this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. <laughs>